Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. The tabby hornwork that once guarded the northern approach to Charleston formed the citadel of American resistance during the British siege of 1780. But the story of its construction commenced decades before the Revolution. It arose from prolonged conversations about the best manner of defending the backside of South Carolina's colonial capital and was intended to supersede earlier, less remarkable works. Prompted by the outbreak of a new war with France in 1756, local officials and royal engineers bit the bullet and ordered the construction of several new fortifications that would transform the Lowcountry landscape. Last week, I provided an overview of a neglected fortification called the Hornwork that once straddled King Street along the northern edge of Colonial Charleston. Having already described the highlights of that structure's general design, materials, and dimensions, I'd like to segue into a more detailed investigation of its construction in the late 1750s. That era marked the final phase of a long series of fortification projects in urban Charleston that stretched back to the 1670s. Time does not permit a full recital of the several construction campaigns leading up to the 1750s, but a brief synopsis of some of that material will help set the stage, so to speak, for the rise of the Hornwork and help us appreciate its role in our community's long history. Defending the Northern Approach to Charleston Charleston's original northern boundary was a line stretching from the Ashley River to the Cooper River along what is now Bufane Street and continuing a bit south of Hazel Street. But the heart of the early settlement was further to the south and east. The town's earliest 17th-century fortifications concentrated on defending the Cooper River waterfront. But in 1703, the provincial legislature adopted a plan to surround the town's highest land with a system of entrenchments, earthen walls and bastions surrounded by a broad ditch. That plan included a triangular ravelin, or fortified island, at the intersection of Meeting and Broad Streets, which provided a western gateway to the broad path, King Street, leading in and out of the town. It was inevitable that the town would eventually outgrow these works, however, and the entrenchments and ravelin were removed sometime in the early 1730s. The exact date was now lost. As early as September 1738, ahead of a new war with Spain, the provincial government of South Carolina considered cutting a line of entrenchments across the peninsula in the approximate location of present-day Calhoun Street, but nothing was done at that time. In 1744, while Britain waged war against both Spain and France, the provincial legislature revised its thinking and considered digging a new line of entrenchments across the peninsula in the approximate location of present-day Market Street. Visiting engineer Peter Henry Bruce encouraged these plans in early 1745 by proposing to construct a large, fortified citadel at what is now the intersection of King and Market Street to defend the northern approaches to the town. 
The provincial government deemed Bruce's plan too large and too expensive, so local merchant and amateur engineer Othniel Bale reduced it to a much simpler and cheaper line of earthen entrenchments and bastions. Bale's plan was approved by the legislature in May of 1745 and immediately set in motion. The town's second gate and drawbridge, standing at what is now the intersection of King and Market Streets, were dismantled during a period of peace in 1750, but the line of entrenchments and moat along what is now Market Street stood until 1766. The construction of new fortifications was a low priority in South Carolina during the peaceful years of the early 1750s. The provincial legislature approved funding in 1752 for the construction of a new Anglican church for the urban parish of St. Michael, and the following year finally set in motion the construction of a proper state house. During that same era, however, Governor James Glenn personally invited a visiting engineer, William de Brom, to draft a plan for new fortifications around Charleston. Hoping to impress the colonial government, de Brom proposed an elaborate system of robust fortifications around the peninsular town, including a massive diamond-shaped citadel, similar to that proposed by Bruce in 1745, at a site now occupied by the intersection of King and Calhoun Streets. Even after the capital's fortifications were largely wrecked by the hurricane of September 1752, the legislature refused to consider de Brom's defensive plan during a time of general peace in Europe and the colonies. The South Carolina legislature ignored de Brom's proposals until the spring of 1755, when increasing political tensions between Britain and France presaged the outbreak of a new war. Suddenly, under pressure from the provincial government to reduce the scope of his 1752 plan, de Brom produced a revised version proposing a simpler fortified line along Charleston's northern boundary, complete with several cannon batteries and a detached ravelin, a sort of fortified triangular island, adjacent to what is now the intersection of King and Hazel Streets. The local commissioners of fortifications, a board of gentlemen appointed by the governor, reviewed de Brom's revised plan in July 1755 and dismissed the idea of funding any new works along the town's northern line. In their opinion, the line of entrenchments constructed in 1745 along what is now Market Street were adequate for defending the northern approach to Charleston. Believing that potential invaders might sail into Charleston Harbor and attack first the southern tip of the peninsula, the commissioners of fortifications instructed William de Brom to commence construction of his new defensive works at White Point. Preliminary work commenced at that site in the summer of 1755 with the foundations of a new gun battery, later called Littleton Bastion located midway between Granville Bastion, built at the turn of the 18th century, and Broughton's Battery, built in the late 1730s. After nearly nine months of slow progress, the South Carolina Commons House of Assembly resolved in late March 1756 to limit the scope of Mr. de Brom's construction to the works then underway at White Point. 
a feeling of mutual frustration induced Mr. DeBrom to retreat to the back country that summer to oversee the construction of Fort Loudon in the Overhill Cherokee Territory of what is now eastern Tennessee. As Lieutenant Governor William Bull later remarked in 1770, Mr. DeBrom and his plan were laid aside. A New War with France William Henry Littleton arrived in Charleston in June 1756 and immediately took office as South Carolina's new royal governor. Two months later, news arrived from London that King George II had declared war on France on May 17th. That autumn, the provincial legislature began to consider methods of putting the colony in a better posture of defense by strengthening its fortifications and expanding the militia. At the same time, Governor Littleton wrote to the Earl of Loudoun, the commander-in-chief of British forces in North America, and asked him to send regular troops and an engineer to help defend South Carolina. While the provincial government waited for professional assistance to arrive from afar, local authorities did their best to prepare for war. In late January 1757, the South Carolina legislature resolved to build a new magazine in the village of Dorchester to house a reserve supply of gunpowder in case enemy forces captured Charleston. In mid-February, the commissioners of fortifications conducted a trial at Fort Johnson on James Island to see if tabby, a popular local form of concrete composed largely of oyster shells, might make an acceptable substitute for brickwork. Local bricklayer and tabby expert Thomas Gordon convinced the commissioners that tabby was more permanent than earthen fortifications and cheaper than brickwork, and he won the contract to fortify the magazine at Dorchester. In early March, the provincial legislature resolved to spend large sums of public money to repair and strengthen Fort Johnson and to construct a new fort on Port Royal Island near the town of Beaufort. Meanwhile, South Carolina's only resident professional engineer, William DeBrom, recently returned from Cherokee Territory, felt slighted by the government's abridgment of his fortification plans and departed for Georgia in a huff. The local legislature was proposing to throw large sums of money at various fortification projects during a time of perceived danger, but for the moment the province lacked a skilled professional to oversee their design. In mid-June 1757, a detachment of five companies of the 1st Battalion of His Majesty's 60th Regiment of Foot, the so-called Royal Americans, arrived from New York. Their commander, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Bockett, a native of Switzerland, was himself something of an amateur engineer, but he brought with him a more capable fortification expert. Among the multilingual officers that Lieutenant Colonel Bockett had recruited in Switzerland in early 1756 was one Emmanuel Hess, a young engineer who accepted a lieutenant's commission that February. During his nine months' residency in South Carolina, from mid June 1757 to late March 1758, Lieutenant Hess visited a number of fortified sites in the colony, conversed with public officials, and learned about the virtues of oyster shell tabby concrete from local tradesmen. 
all of the fortified works he designed during this short period, including an expansion of Fort Johnson on James Island, modifications to de Brom's fortifications at White Point, a new fort on Port Royal Island, and the horn work in Charleston, made use of tabby construction. Hess's tenure in the Lowcountry might have been brief, but his talent for military architecture left an enduring stamp on the local landscape. Alarmed by the state of war with a powerful French military, a number of inhabitants petitioned the provincial government in late June 1757 for increased fortifications around Charleston. They worried that the naked and defenseless situation of this town and harbor might tempt France to make a vigorous push to attack Charleston. The petitioners begged the legislature, quote, to exercise every stratagem that can be invented to make the place as defensible as the time will admit of. They shall most cheerfully pay their proportions of the expense, be it what it will, being convinced that if the enemy should once become the masters of this town, the whole country will irrecoverably be lost, end quote. Having heard of the arrival of Lieutenant Hess, the inhabitants asked the assembly to undertake, quote, the most active, vigorous measures possible that the engineer, Lord Loudon, has been so kind to send here, may be enabled to do the best he can with all dispatch, end quote. On June 28th, Governor Littleton informed the South Carolina Commons House of Assembly that he had earlier written to the Earl of Loudoun asking him to send an engineer to improve what he called the weak and defenseless condition of the fortifications in the province. I now have the pleasure to acquaint you, said the governor, that his lordship has sent Captain Hesse, a good and able engineer, and Lieutenant Colonel Bockett, who commands the forces, is also very well versed in that art. These gentlemen are of opinion that new works are necessary to be constructed without delay, as well here in Charleston as at Fort Johnson, to prevent this place from falling an easy prey to the enemy in case of an attack. But if you will grant a free and liberal aid, this town and province may, in a few months, be put in such a state of defense as not to dread one. End quote. Shortly after the arrival of the 60th Regiment, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Bockett convinced the provincial government that it was necessary to construct additional barracks for the British troops to be quartered in Charleston during the war. Echoing the earlier advice of Peter Henry Bruce and William de Brom, he also convinced them to build a new fortification to protect the northern approach to Charleston. Bockett noted in a letter to Lord Loudon that the town had, quote, some old fortifications towards the sea, but the back part, that is, to the north of the town, is quite open, and in supposing that the assembly would grant the necessary sums to fortify the land side, it will still prove a difficult task by the great number of houses scattered all around, end quote. After agreeing to build new barracks and a new fortification on the back part of Charleston, which became the Hornwork, the provincial government of South Carolina was now committed to funding six different military construction projects across the Lowcountry landscape, in addition to the ongoing efforts to build St. Michael's Church and the State House. 
To fund these new defensive works, the legislature ratified an act on June 6, 1757, to appropriate 44,000 pounds of the provincial tax revenues during the coming year towards the construction of fortifications in urban Charleston and at Fort Johnson. The paper trail of accounts related to these projects is now incomplete and confusing, but it provides important clues that help us understand the rise of the hornwork and other contemporary structures. Planning for Littleton In mid-August 1757, Governor William Henry Littleton accompanied Henry Bockett and Emanuel Hess on a week-long excursion to Beaufort to view the site of the proposed new fort on Port Royal Island. Shortly after their return to Charleston, on August 25th, Mr. Hesse, the engineer, presented to the commissioners of fortifications, quote, a plan of a fort to be built on Spanish Point on Port Royal River, end quote. A copy of that plat was later sent to the Earl of Loudoun, and it now survives in the collections of the Huntington Library in California. Hess's hand-colored illustration of what became known as Fort Littleton forms the perfect companion to a robust description of the fort's design and construction found in the contemporary manuscript journal of the Commissioners of Fortifications. Because Port Royal Island was 50 miles southwest of Charleston, as the crow flies, the governor deputized several local gentlemen to oversee that construction project. He also required those deputies to send periodic reports to the commissioners of fortifications in Charleston, summarizing the details of contracts, laborers, materials, and the progress of the work from time to time. Thanks to their dutiful compliance with the governor's instructions, the lone surviving journal of the Commissioners of Fortifications includes a pretty remarkable record of the construction of Fort Littleton between late 1757 and early 1759. We know, for example, that the walls of Fort Littleton and its barracks encompassed 40,000 cubic feet of solid tabby work and 65,000 cubic feet of earth for filling the parapet and banquette. We know that construction commenced in late October 1757 with around 50 enslaved men, plus the tabby maker and several white overseers. Within the first six weeks of work, locals had delivered approximately 30,000 bushels of oyster shells, and boats continued to bring more shells to the site daily. At the end of 14 weeks, approximately 70,000 bushels of oyster shells had been delivered. Nearly one year after commencing construction, the commissioners were contemplating the best manner of finishing the Merlins, or uppermost parts of the walls of Fort Littleton. In contrast to the bounty of information documenting the rise of Fort Littleton, the surviving records of the construction of the hornwork in urban Charleston are far less complete. Hess's original plan, drawn at the same time as that of Fort Littleton, has not been found. The Board of Commissioners of Fortifications appointed three of its own members, Thomas Smith, Daniel Crawford, and John Hume, to superintend the construction of the hornwork, and those men apparently reported its progress verbally to their colleagues. 
If the commissioners and the governor wish to satisfy their curiosity about the progress of the hornwork, they simply rode up King Street to view the site with their own eyes. Because there was no need to send periodic written reports about its progress to distant commissioners, most of the details of its construction were never recorded. The financial records of the commissioners of fortifications provide additional valuable details about the various government-funded construction projects of the late 1750s. Expenses related to four of the six fortification projects undertaken in South Carolina during the period 1757 to 1759 were paid from discrete streams of revenue appropriated by specific acts of the legislature. Accounts related to the work on James Island, for example, were, quote, paid out of the money granted for repairing and strengthening Fort Johnson, end quote while those related to Fort Littleton on Port Royal Island, the magazine at Dorchester, and the barracks in Charleston were paid from similarly separate funds. Because the clerk of the Commissioners of Fortifications, Samuel Prelo, always separated the accounts related to those four projects, the board's surviving financial records provide a relatively clear picture of the contractors, overseers, materials, and the total expenses related to each respective project. In contrast to this accounting transparency, however, the two distinct fortification projects progressing in urban Charleston during the same period are not as easily distinguished. In the surviving manuscript journal, the clerk of the commissioners of fortifications combined accounts related to Mr. de Brom's works on the southern tip of the peninsula and accounts related to Mr. Hess's horn work on the north side of the town into a single column of expenses, quote, to be paid out of the fortification fund, end quote. This arrangement renders it very difficult to determine which individuals, materials, and expenses are related to one or the other of the two projects. The clerk tagged a few of these accounts with specific geographic language, such as on the North Works or on White Point, but the majority cannot now be tied to one or the other of the two urban projects with certainty. Planning the Hornwork. On the same day that Emanuel Hess submitted his plan for Fort Littleton to the local government, 25th of August, 1757, Lieutenant Colonel Bockett wrote to the Earl of Loudoun to summarize their defensive strategy for the capital of South Carolina. The Swiss officer noted that, quote, some outworks will be raised on the land side to the north. The marshes, which surround the town that way, make its situation naturally strong, end quote. Lieutenant Hess apparently made at least one duplicate of his design for the hornwork, which Henry Bockett forwarded to the Earl of Loudoun in mid-October. Because Hess's illustration is now lost, Bockett's narration of the Charleston landscape merits a full reading. Quote, I lay before your lordship the plan of this town and harbor with the fortifications that I have directed Lieutenant Hesse to draw. We have endeavored to dispose the works in the best manner so as to require a small number of men for their defense. 
The marshes are impracticable, that is, impassable, near the rivers, the part on the left defended by one redoubt and two towers, the right by two redoubts, and the only weak part of the neck will be sufficiently covered by the hornwork, supported by the four redoubts and the entrenchment beyond. It was necessary to carry out the works at that distance from the town by the following considerations. First, to take advantage of that situation, which can be completely fortified with few works. Second, to leave a proper place for new buildings, as the town is daily increasing. Three, to reduce or induce the enemy to make his attacks at such a distance that the town might suffer little by a siege. Four, to have room for another enclosure made of part of the old decayed rampart built in 1745, and the new entrenchment pointed in the draft. This plan has been approved of here by the governor and the commissioners of fortifications, and shall immediately be put in execution. I am very far to think myself a competent judge of fortifications, but I have done nothing without mature reflection. My design has been to make the best of the situation, and with a few works and a moderate expense, make this town sufficiently strong to be easily defended with a small garrison. Your lordship is the proper judge how far this plan may answer the end proposed. After a busy summer of planning and negotiating, the commissioners of fortifications finally turned their attention to the new works to defend Charleston's northern boundary in October 1757. With five other fortification projects underway, in addition to the unfinished St. Michael's Church and State House, the provincial government was spending a lot of money to hire dozens of white contractors and hundreds of enslaved laborers across the Lowcountry. To supplement the labor force with minimal expense to the provincial government, Lieutenant Colonel Bockett and Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Montgomery of the newly arrived 62nd Regiment of Foot, later renamed the 77th Regiment of Highlanders, offered their men for extra duty. On October 10th, they agreed with Governor Littleton to employ soldiers in the construction of the new works at the daily rate of three shillings and sixpence currency that is, six pence sterling each, plus one gill of rum, a quarter of a pint, for six hours of work, which was half of a workday. At a meeting that afternoon, held at the council chamber, Governor Littleton informed the commissioners of fortifications of this labor deal, and then, quote, delivered to them the plan of the works to be carried on across the town neck and recommended to them to carry the same into execution with all convenient speed, End quote. With a plan in hand and workmen at the ready, there was just one minor detail delaying the commencement of the hornwork. The government had not yet acquired the legal rights to the necessary land. In past projects, South Carolina's provincial government had simply exercised its right of eminent domain and usurped whatever property was deemed necessary for defensive purposes. In the late 1750s, however, the local government attempted to negotiate with landowners in advance when possible. 
working with their military advisors. In the autumn of 1757, the commissioners of fortifications selected a site for the hornwork nearly 700 yards, or approximately 600 meters, north of the town boundary, now Bufane Street. The property in question encompassed a pair of bucolic pastures owned by Peter Manigo on the west of the broad path and John Rag on the east of the road. Walking over the land with both of the owners on October 28th, the commissioners marked the boundaries of their proposed acquisition and directed Lieutenant Hess to survey the land necessary for his plans. The engineer reported on November 8th that the area in question contained about 14 acres, though it was later more precisely described as six and a quarter acres on the west side of the broad path and eight and three quarter acres on the east, now Marion Square. Messrs. Manigo and Rag apparently agreed in principle to the sale at that time, but they did not convey titles to the land until the following July. Meanwhile, back in early November 1757, the commissioners of fortifications agreed that three of their board members, Thomas Smith, Daniel Crawford, and John Hume, would jointly oversee the construction of the hornwork and, quote, superintend the works to be carried on across the town neck through Mr. John Rags and Mr. Peter Manigo's land, end quote. Lieutenant Colonel Bockett then informed the commissioners that his soldiers were ready to begin work as soon as tools were available. The board agreed to employ 100 soldiers beginning on Monday, November 14th, and instructed the superintendents of the hornwork, quote, to give directions for a sufficient number of wheelbarrow and spades to be sent to the place where the people are to go to work, end quote. I'm out of time for this week, so we'll pause the story of the hornwork here for the moment. Next week, we'll follow the story of the tradesmen, soldiers, enslaved laborers, and boatmen who transformed tons of oyster shells into a towering white gate that, before it defended American soldiers, succeeded in causing traffic jams on King Street for many years. Charleston County Public Library is your home for local history. To explore our resources and programs, and to read an illustrated transcript of this podcast, point your web browser to ccpl.org. Thanks for listening to the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.